and welcome to the continuum of my series on restorative justice and social healing in America and beyond. My name is Molly Rowan Leach, and I'm with Molly Rowan Presents. I'm the executive director and founder of this um, series, which is a, a continuum that happens weekly of deep dialogue, information, education, and conversation around these topics of social healing and restorative justice. Um, I am so thrilled tonight to have a very special guest whom I have deep respect for, deep admiration for, and I'll be introducing him in just one moment. But first of all, I would just like to say a couple words about tonight's call. Um, given that this is the Maestro Conferencing Platform, you, you will um, note that you can raise uh, your hand to ask a question during our question and answer periods just simply by pressing one on your keypad. And we will be going into um, hearing from, from our guests tonight and then periodic question and answer sessions so that the point being we will have an opportunity to dialogue together and also to ask our guests questions and to share our comments and reflections. And so without further ado, I am just absolutely honored to introduce you. Many of you I'm sure know of Matthew Albrecht, who is the Executive Director of the Peace Alliance, which is an alliance of organizers and advocates throughout the United States, taking the work of peace building from the margins of society into the centers of national discourse and policy priorities. They mobilize a network of grassroots teams in hundreds of cities, towns, colleges, and high school campuses. Matthew has worked with the Peace Alliance since its founding in 2004, and prior to that worked on various campaigns over the years to help create a more just and sustainable world. He has a BA in psychology from Sonoma State University focusing in California focusing on eco-psychology. Matthew also holds a master's in humanities and leadership with a focus on culture, ecology, and sustainable communities from New College of California. And I just want to say beyond that, I've met Matthew personally most recently at the Imagine Peace Conference at the University of California, Berkeley. And I'm just deeply impressed by his humility, and I can sense his devotion and the, the utter hard work that he puts into behind the curtain towards a culture of peace and, and peace building in general, um, combining the necessary aspects of uh, what I call um, and what we many of us call, and I believe Gandhi called Satyagraha, which is love in action, to create a world of peace, one person and one action at a time. So I was just, I'm just so pleased to have you here with us tonight, Matthew, and um, just welcome you. Mm, thanks, Molly. It's great to be here. I so appreciate your mission and work in the world as well, and I'm thrilled to be a part of this conversation and exploring these beautiful topics. So tonight, Matthew, um, one of the, the, the most 
inspiring things to me about having you here is I noticed that you know you're you're a wayshore and a leader in a very significant field. You're you're doing a lot of of mobilization and actions, and um, yet you, it, it always seems to be that you're highlighting um, others and doing what you do behind the scenes. So I think it's such a special treat to have you with us tonight, and I'd love for you to to share a bit about your background and about. Um, how the Peace Alliance came into being in 2004, and perhaps what your role was? Sure, absolutely, absolutely. Well, you know, interesting. My my sort of path to activism and peace activism in particular took kind of a roundabout course. Um, I grew up on a very small uh, in a small town uh, on a farm in Texas, in northern Texas. Um, and lived lived there until I was in my early 20s and moved to California. And I'd always been um, a little more interested in activism and especially ecological issues as, as a, a youth, even though uh, there, there wasn't a lot of energy for that or awareness of that or desire for that where I came from. But just always had kind of a passion about um, the planet and the earth and the environment in particular. It's funny as I right before I went on the call, I had a little cup of tea that from a plastic bottle, and on the you know one of the brands that has the quotes, and the quote on the bottle is, "It is not the strongest of the species that survives, not the most intelligent, but the most responsive to change," which is a Darwin quote. I thought that was interesting because it is really hard for for so many of us to to change. I think our our patterns. We get into comfortable patterns um, and and get attached to our beliefs and our viewpoints. And I always had a questioning of that growing up. I always had a questioning of, of sort of standard course as usual. Um, started one of the first environmental clubs in my high school. Um, uh, probably was the first environmental club in my high school. And when I went to school, I really was, was studying ecological issues. And, and my activism was, was engaged a lot around that issue. Um, one of the big turning points in my life, because I also had uh, a, in my early 20s a kind of a deep spiritual exploration that I was uh, involved with, just reading books and classes and learning practices. And I got a book. Uh, I was a fan of uh, Marianne Williamson, who's an author, spiritual author, among other things. And she wrote a book called The Healing of America. And I got involved uh, with some things she was doing around the book. She was having what she called citizen salons at, at that time. Eventually they became peace circles. Um, but she was doing those around the country and I just got involved and formed my own citizen salon. I really loved that she had this combination of kind of the deeper spiritual elements and creating social and political change. Um, those were two big passions of mine at the time. And so that really kind of put me on a, a, a bit of a wider course and amongst my studies at school and my activism on various campaigns. I worked Ralph Nader in California had a thing called the Oaks Project where we were trying to get initiatives passed to improve the state of democracy and environmental issues in, in the state of California. There were just lots and lots of things I worked on here in California. It really it was quite an experience to be go from a small town in Texas to uh, Northern California. 
uh, the, the San Francisco Bay Area in particular, I was up in Sonoma County, where it was just a whole different way of seeing the world, and that was quite a, a blossoming experience for me. Um, but got got really involved, and and you know, I think part of what the this idea of being the change that Gandhi talked about, and so many others. Um, was a really important concept for me and and being the piece that we wanted to see in the world. And I, uh, Marianne was a, a strong teacher on, you know, us really infusing our activism with what we want to see come out of it, with the, the love and the the compassion that, that we're hoping to achieve as an end goal, that it was really important to do that in our activism as well. And that was that was important for me, the issues of interpersonal peace, uh, were were earlier than I think my direct peace activism. I had a lot of a lot of direct and indirect violence in my youth. Um, just you know, I think a lot of folks in our culture do, both at school with bullies, you know, some at home, um, you know, a lot of fighting with brothers, and just there was just a violence was was very rampant and and felt normal, but but. Uh, normal but not good, felt very not good. So as as we began in, in the work, I eventually started working with Marianne in another uh, nonprofit that was called the Global Renaissance Alliance, where we were doing um, uh, the citizen salons, which became peace circles, where people would sit in a circle in, in communities and have some time with silence, and then we would look at different issues that were important to us and uh, just kind of go through this process of uh, what we would call a peace circle. And um, it started to become the word peace and the, the, the peace activism started to become important to me. Previously, w when I knew of peace work, it was, uh, I think, simply anti-war. That was all I would have known about peace activism. And and there was this sort of new sense of it brewing and bubbling up. And we we started studying um, the Department of Peace legislation in the early 2000s, which had been introduced by Congressman Dennis Kucinich. And upon reading it, we're, we were all just so amazed at the concepts and the ideas that there could be government structure that would actually organize, uh, fund, research, um, and implement peace strategies at all levels of society, from domestic to international issues, from you know gang violence, bullying in schools, all the way up to war, conflict, hotspots, etc. Uh, and that, that felt like a really bold, um, a bold issue for us to get behind, and we had wanted something really focused. So, so we took it on, and then really that's when the sort of peace work started happening. I'd never thought about it or intended to do it, but it felt really like it was something at at the base and the core of a lot of other issues that we were struggling with. This idea of how do we bring peace to situations? Uh, because you know, I, I, you know, my, one of my big passions was the environmental movement, and I I would go to rallies or I would go you know with organizing, and there was always conflict was always there, even amongst the activists, and it would be very deflating, and it would also derail a lot of our uh, uh, our work because we'd get stuck there. You know, it might be competing organizations or uh, competing interests within an organization, you know, competing against uh, whoever we were opposing. There was just, there was a lot of, of room where that, that would stall and really stop our ability to be effective. And so this idea of peace activism being something much deeper than I'd ever heard of really became appealing to me. And I really started to see that not only was it something that could really help the core of a lot of social change movements, 
finding ways to bring those values and understanding and resources to bear upon all the problems that we were facing. Uh, but also it, it was nourishing for me and for what I could learn about my own life and my own, uh, you know, personal peace practices and skills and, and activism and engagement. So that sort of gave birth to the, that Department of Peace campaign that we started in the Global Renaissance Alliance gave birth to the Peace Alliance uh, in a lot of ways. Um, we, the, the Global Renaissance Alliance was a 501c3 nonprofit, which doesn't allow for a lot of lobbying, and we were kind of taking that on full on. And so uh, uh, and there were a lot of sort of financial struggles with that organization. So we folded that organization, and, and, and a group of us uh, that, you know, had been behind the the Global Renaissance Alliance work, which Marianne Williamson founded and was deeply engaged in, uh, you know, decided to start this other nonprofit called the Peace Alliance, which was a 501c4, which is just another tax category which allows you to lobby. And Marianne was, of course, one of those people. And we, you know, just wanted to start an organization that could really engage, as you said when you shared our mission, Molly, uh, engage activists to really go deeply in this work for peace and really uh, championing peace building and peace building infrastructure, the Department of Peace being our big kickoff initiative. Uh, it's something that's been a real uh, foundation for our work for years is that concept of such a big, wide-scale uh, infrastructure for peace. And w the reason that we, we really, and I personally really wanted to do it was just because it also seemed like such an underserved area, this idea of preventative, proactive support I mean, preventative proactive uh, measures to cultivate and create peace and having, you know, not, hadn't seen a lot. There were certainly some really amazing organizations, including the Friends Committee on National Legislation that work on peace-related issues. But sort of this inner outer peace, there weren't a lot of people serving that and especially articulating and lobbying for domestic and international peace-building issues. So we really felt like it was an, uh, an underserved area um, you look at the environmental movement, you see you know, hundreds of thousands of national and international organizations working on those issues. And it's still not enough, of course, but there's a lot happening in the area of sort of proactive peace uh, advocacy. There's, there's, just, there's not a lot of groups out there, but there's a lot of people that have skills. And that's partly why you probably hear me sharing about other people's work, because the alliance building part of our work is really to highlight and spotlight the people who are on the ground doing amazing work, you know, I know the theme of this call is restorative justice. And so that's such a, a key part of a new way of looking at uh, bringing peace into our culture is through these new methods. Uh, actually, they're old methods, but they're new in terms of what we know about as a collective culture of dealing with violence and, you know, rehabilitation and restoration as a community and as people. Um, so, you know, we, we really just uh, get behind that stuff and that's a big part of kind of the arc of how I got into the work and the organization and, and where it came out of. There, you want to do any open stuff now, Molly? Yeah, that would be great, Matthew. And I just want to make a quick comment about um, just this, this sense of, of the coherence that the Peace Alliance seems to bring to the table on behalf of uh, our collective peace movement. Um, 
and the avenues to which individuals can um, be empowered, empower themselves to stream into very particular actions and, and know where to access what is actually happening. I really appreciate the fact that, and I would like to learn more actually about what the Peace Alliance does in particular um, politically, and I know that um, there's quite a few things that are happening in that realm. So maybe we can mm -hmm. go into that later in the call. Absolutely. Yeah. So dive back in. Thank you. Definitely, definitely. And, and you know, um, actually, should we, should we just pause for a moment and see if anybody would like to make a, a comment or, or have a question at this point, or would you like to, to just dive Sounds back good. in? Either way, yeah, I have a sense, you know, given what Matthew has shared thus far, if anyone has a comment or a question, please press 1 on your keypad. And we will unmute you. Yes, go ahead, Joyce. You are live. Hello. Molly, it's great to hear your voice again. I miss you. <laughs> And Matthew, uh, thank you for sharing your, your, a little bit of your life story. I'm sure it's much more detailed as, as we unfold these questions. Mm -hmm. one, of the thi <laughs> one of the things that I have been very interested in in my own life around peace is bringing the macro to the micro and the micro back to the macro. So in exploring peace issues, it invariably goes back to the self and how one walks one's talk in the world. Uh, so my question is, how do people walk one's talk in the context of the larger view, uh, like the Occupy, Occupy Wall Street, or all of the as nonviolent means as possible uh, on a social scale that we've seen in Egypt and other countries um, that end up turning to violence uh, because of something breaking down. So if you could speak to the breaking down process and then what would your suggestions be to, to maintain that peaceful alliance internally and externally? Mm. Yeah, that's a great concept and question. Thanks so much for that. You know, I think the the base of it feels to me like, of course, it's learning skills, learning learning practices, skills. Uh, obviously, making a commitment that that's important to you and sharing that uh, at a personal level. That is the most micro. I think is our own hearts and our own minds. Um, you know, there's so much out there. There's so many things out there that, that you know, especially now people can tap into um, to learn that work. Part, one of our favorite things, and it's not necessarily any better or worse than anything else, but one of the things that we've been exposed to a lot and worked with is nonviolent communication uh, as a practice. And we, we, a lot of our congressional, we do congressional district team leaders, which is kind of how we organize, but just our grassroots leadership and people who are involved with us um, have studied that practice and others uh, as part of their activism. We, we used to have monthly calls um, and we just kind of work through that. Like how can we bring to bear 
these values in our advocacy work. So it's not the, the, the kind of standard us against them mentality. Um, but it's really about connecting more than convincing. And in connecting, often you're able to go so much deeper in, 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 in really enrolling people. Um, and, and or at the very least learning from people. So you know, there's, so many, there's so many elements. And in our own work too, you know, based, as I was saying about Marianne Williamson, of course she's it's a big part of her philosophy. Um, she's a student of Gandhi and Dr. King in terms of some of the nonviolent principles. And really that was a kind of a core value for, for us from the beginning that we really wanted to be the change uh, that we want to see in the world. So I think part of it is also educating uh, at the larger scale. You know, nonviolence is is a really sophisticated um, way of being and and way of being uh, active and an activist. You know, and so to think of the Wall Street folks, you know, there are many people far more skilled than me that really know the ins and outs of effective nonviolent um, activism. Um, you know, from the teachings of Gandhi and Dr. King. Um, Michael Nagler, who's a former professor and the founder of the Conflict Resolution Studies Program at UC Berkeley, has a nonprofit called META, M-E-T-T-A, uh, it might be Meta Center, I'm sorry, I don't remember, but he teaches these skills. You know, I think there's a lot of folks that could be attending these Occupy Wall Streets and really bringing that energy with them uh, as, as they do the, the engagement there. You know, just bringing some of these concepts and skills to the people who are very passionate and wanting to make a difference. Um, as we see in our political system, there's a lot of divisiveness and it really stalls our capacity to have any kind of real change or transformation because we can't even get beyond basic conversations with each other. So that's kind of what came to mind for me with that question. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yes, thank you, Joyce, for that great question, and Matthew for a beautiful response. And uh, I just want to add too, um, it's the the Meta Center, and that's metacenter.org. So for those of you who are interested in in checking out further, Michael Nagler is another amazing soul, <clears throat> um, doing great work. And um, I'd also like to point out too, um, maybe we'll take one more question here in a second, but um, if you are interested in, in the many facets of the Peace Alliance and have never visited their website, uh, it's very rich and diverse and multifaceted. It's peacealliance.org. That's peacealliance.org. Actually, the, you have to put the, the in front of it. We, oh, the, thank you. Uh, ThePeaceAlliance.org. Thank you, Matthew. <laughs> um, and there's a couple of pointers within that site that are fairly new, and one of them is the Faces of Peace. And there's also a Faces of Peace newsletter that you can sign up for. And if you're inclined to find out more about political actions, you can find out about those there um, on the general website. And also you can donate at thepeacealliance.org. So there's many things that you can, can do. And um, so Matthew, why don't we take one more question and then go back in. Hope that sounds Sure. Sounds good. Ira, go ahead. You're live. Oh, hi. And thank you so much, Michael, for your introduction. It's 
uh, what it pointed out to me was the uh, kind of commonality we all have in having grown up with certain kinds of ideas that haven't really come to fruition until the last few years. Um, I think they have with, with uh, great leaders like you. But in, in my own life, um, I know I kept doing this and that. Um, I was in Washington, D.C., and I was working with the Peace Foundation. It wasn't really the Peace Foundation. It was the Peace Garden and Peace Museum, two different organizations mm -hmm. at the time. I was very active in those, and then I had to move away. And um, always uh, throughout my life I'd been learning uh, compassion or trying to, and I was a person with a big high temper, <laughs> so I had to learn to control my temper. And um, I and I ended up teaching in the last 18 years alternatives to violence in Lake County, which is um, mm. a 52-week program for men and women in gender-specific classes for um, people who have been have offended their loved ones. Um, you know, there's been violence at home. And um, and when people gripe about having to take these courses, I said, don't feel bad. I've been doing it for 18 years. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I hope I've learned as much as anybody else. But if anyone ever wants to learn any of those things and they want to give me a call, they're also very welcome to do that. And That's I, I, great. I've just learned about the Peace um, uh, Alliance recently. And I'm so excited about it. That's why I wanted to be in on this call tonight. And and I understand your adjustments from, you know, the small town in Texas to San Francisco and the larger cities and the adaptation mm -hmm. that you have to do in your leadership. So I just want to congratulate you and, and follow your lead in learning the language of peace and transcendence and fair um, mm. play. Well, thank you for doing the work. That's so valuable. It's needed at every at every community in you know the world needs these tools and practices available for people to learn and 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 just learn how to be more civil with one another at the very least. And just a really quick thing on that. Um, it's, we'll talk more about it later. But uh, Molly mentioned the Faces of Peace. That's a kind of a website we created. Um, that we hope to partner with a lot of other organizations on moving forward, but we just started it as a way to share the stories of people doing peace work and people who just have a commitment to peace in their own personal lives, you know, from whether you just have a, a peace practice in your own life or you're doing some really awesome program like you're doing in your community with the skill building, just a, t a place for people to post their stories about what they're doing, post links to their work, uh, you know, videos, resources, books, PDFs, uh, and just to, what we want to do is give, you know, the nation and the world a sense that there is another way and, and so many forums to, to do things in a different way, in a more peaceful way, and that they're effective and they work and why they work. So, you know, when you shared that, the first thing that came to my mind was just being inspired from what you do and just wanting to say, hey, go post your story because more people will be exposed to it and learn about it when you offered to, you know, to, to give those resources, that's a great way to do it. It's just to post who you are, what you do, and any tools, links, websites, etc., that people can go and learn more. Uh, you know, we hope to just keep that spreading out. So consider doing that. That's one of uh, the new 
uh, offerings that the Peace Alliance is cultivating that is so exciting to me, given that we are all in the world. And when we link up in this way and we can find each other and share resources as well as see uh, the Peace Alliance's incredible library of resources and, um, and tools of, of varying degrees, it's, it's very hopeful to me and inspiring. So thank you, Matthew. Mm-hmm. It's a fun initiative. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, go ahead and dive back in and... Uh, Back sure, sure. We're just going to share there. more about the work and the cause. Of yeah, Sam. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Good. Good. Well, you know, the the culture piece is a big concept, and what what would that entail? Of course, it entails. I think, as we said a little earlier, and several folks mentioned as well, it's kind of like it's the meta and the micro and the the macro. Um, so, you know, at every level we have to, to have tools available in our homes, in our communities. People need to be trained. The field of peace building, uh, is a, which is a term that's not completely defined, but it's about really creating sustainability uh, in, in areas of, of culture and life that are in conflict so that they don't, essentially they don't brew into violence and its practices. Um, but the field and study of it, you know, it's it's a fairly new science. Psychology is a fairly new science. It's only this last decade of the 1900s that it really came into fruition and got some real heft and scientific weight of like how do we, who are we, and how do we be with ourselves and be with each other. Um, that's a, a whole new way of of humanity in our tens of thousands of years of thinking ourselves to function. And so this this more sophisticated types of work of peace building. Uh, is new. It's fairly new um, compared to the arc of our history. And so, you know, what I think we need to do, and this is part of our mission at the Peace Alliance and some other organizations as well, is to really try to help uh, put the spotlight on what this work is. Uh, we have kind of three key areas that we work in. We work in advocacy and education and in mobilization are kind of our three anchors. Um, you know, so we, we're advocating for, you know, urgently, desperately needed policies and legislation that would, would support uh, and fund peace building and peace work and, and peace infrastructure in our various agencies, whether it's local community agencies, you know, uh, up to our federal agencies, up to our international work, really putting uh, the priority on uh, policies and investments in really effective policies and legislation. Uh, so then there's that. Then we work on this educating both the public at large as well as our political leadership to make this work better understood. So that's kind of the spotlight part of it. How do we really make our culture at large know what it is that's possible? You know, Rachel Carson wrote Silent Spring in the 1960s, I believe. That was really the kickoff for a, a wider scale environmental movement. And you see today that Everybody knows about environmentalism and ecology, and whether they agree with it or not, everybody's heard of it as a as a robust movement. Uh, and people have heard, of, of course, peace peace work and peace advocacy, but it's often largely anti-war, anti-nuclear uh, things that are. I also think very those are desperately needed and, and important things to to work uh, towards ending. Um, but there's this whole other layer of proactive, preventative 
structural uh, practices that we're trying to also put a spotlight on. So people really, they've heard, you know, we want people to have heard of peace building or, or whatever word it wants to become over time, like they've heard of any other big movement. Um, so we work on education for that reason. And then we train and mobilize a grassroots network, you know, community and school-based teams who organize to help make it a social priority and political priority. So they, they work with elected officials, they lobby them, they become citizen lobbyists for some of the key legislation and, and policies that, that we work on and other people work on. They form teams in their community, they, they educate their community kind of in the same way we do on the different aspects of what is peace and what is possible and why is it effective and how does it save money, et cetera, et cetera. Um, as well as build alliances and coalitions with key people in their community. And we do that as well nationally. We, we try to do it. We, we are always under-resourced, but that's our big goal and we do work on that is just trying to really help build coalitions and alliances of, of all the different people doing this work and advocacy work and on-the-ground work to try to make ourselves much more of a choir uh, rather than small little pods out there doing our own little things without as much impact as we like, always struggling. We're trying to really help kind of fill that be a part of it, at least filling that 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 niche of um, bringing ourselves together. So, you know, we really we really look at those whole pieces, and and there's more certainly more to a culture of peace than just those those areas. Um, but they're kind of our our what, what we felt was the most underserved and the most needed in terms of missing pieces. There's so many, many, many tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people and practices out there you know, that can help you create and cultivate more peace in various scenarios, whether it's your own life, your own relationships, you know, to community-based things, somebody uh, amazing. I just, one of my favorite things is to learn about the work that's going on out there, people doing just cool projects. Like, I love a few examples are Challenge Day. They go into schools and do this amazing work with youth where it really helps them see their connection to one another and that we're all in this together and, it really can transform kids' lives in schools. There's so many great bullying programs in schools and gang violence prevention programs and people internationally doing work in war-torn regions or conflict hotspots. Uh, you know, people taking, uh, having huge workshops with Israelis and Palestinians, helping them to share in common dialogue and learn more about, you know, the common humanity they each share. And it really brings them closer together and understanding. And capacity. there's just so many things that I've learned about over the years and heard about that are so inspiring. And so, you know, all of that is a, is a part of this, this, this quilt of what a culture of peace could look like. Um, and, and, you know, we see the statistics and the news of how bad it is. And it, it's, it is pretty scary out there. And it's, it's deeply entrenched in many ways. But the, the hope is that, and the reality is there's a lot of possibilities. So if we can shift our national and international and personal and community and state level focus to really put those things in the spotlight and put them on the priority list, we can, we can make a real difference in helping to transform some of certainly the more uh, vile forms of violence out there and, you know, hopefully the, the more personal forms as well. Uh, I, I was thinking about with the restorative justice angle and how important that is, you know, in the, in the U.S. we have youth homicide rates that are more than 10 times that of any other leading industrialized nation uh, in the world. 
And with less than 5% of the world's population, the U.S. has nearly 25%, which is 2.3 million, of its prisoners. Uh, and we spend, between state, local, and federal governments, uh, on average of $65 billion a year on it. You know, it's clearly not working. We have, we have some of the biggest problems with violence and, and crime, and yet we incarcerate and punish uh, kind of at addictive levels, I think. And it doesn't make a huge difference. There's just so many things that we have to shift. And part of the problem is, of course, as, as I'm sure many of us know, there are vested interests out there who are working to keep the status quo as it is. You know, people working in the military industrial complex, you know, the, the prison industrial complex. So many vested interests that make their living and, and livelihood off of it. And they spend billions of dollars on lobbyists to work with our elected officials. I know, again, it's not all about elected officials. That's just a specific focus for us. But that is an important piece of it, you know, that we really have to be a counterweight or a counterbalance to, to that deeply entrenched um, population of people who are pushing for their worldview to continue, uh, which is not effective, by the way. You know, so much of the work, prevention really pays when you focus on prevention-oriented stuff. There was a study out of Pennsylvania, which is just one of many, that looks at um, prevention programs. For every dollar spent on prevention, uh, they found they saved $5 on the back end. Um, so it definitely, it, it pays. You know, morally is, is, for me, the heart of it. You know, that morally we have to, our, our streets are war zones um, in many communities. And kids, when that talk about what brought me and keeps me sustained in this work, I just spend a couple minutes going into silence and thinking about the kids who are living in conditions that are just unthinkable. As as a human species, as humanity, that we allow that to continue to happen, it's just it's unthinkable. It's it's disturbing, uh, and I, I feel like I I as a privileged person, a privileged white person who you know, not that I haven't had my share of challenges, have to be a voice for the people that are the most vulnerable, that need our help the most. And so for us, kind of that's our, our niche, that's our part of what we do to kind of help create a culture of peace is really focusing on how systemically we can make shifts in, in our culture, uh, in our government, in our uh, communities to uh, reprioritize towards prevention, towards um, um, you know, whole systems thinking for how we deal with conflict and violence and challenges uh, and really putting resources and money towards it. So that's kind of a, the, a, a bit of a nutshell of what we do and why we do it. Um, there's a lot more I could say, but I don't know if you want to see if anybody has any comments or questions on any of that personally. Mm. Yes, let's, let's pause for just a moment. This is so rich, Matthew, and I just love, really love... Um, just the, how you point out, I mean, first of all, your humility and, and your, your worldview of really thinking of, of the youth and, and of your, your place in, in the weave of your, you know, how, how you said, you, you know, you did have your challenges, but, but to me, and, and myself as well, and yet at this moment, we have such... Uh, a meeting of great crises in our systems and injustices, and yet the capacity, perhaps like never before, 
to change those systems. And um, it's these moments uh, where we gather together in this way that I feel um, ignite the sparks within us to, to help us, first of all, to know that we're not alone um, on this path, that, um, that our hearts and our hands can be combined in a lot of tangible actions already in motion. And, um, and of course, I, with this forum ongoing, um, it's a force for change in, in mm -hmm. the systems of restorative justice and in social healing. We need each other. We need to know what's happening out there. And we need to know that it's the inner and the outer where those intersect that um, w where we can find, uh, find the niche that we may not have found yet in, in contributing. And, and I would like to just add, too, that I feel like um, even by being here in this time, like my colleague James O'Dee says, he reminds us that you were born for such a time as this. And I just love that. It resounds for me in my work and service when I get discouraged um, in, in or, or feeling like these, these problems uh, are too big. And that pulls me out into solution mode and into this mm -hmm. offering that I, I bring. So, and I also would just like to add really quickly that I really appreciate you pointing out the statistics of recidivism, um, or excuse me, of, you know, of the, of the, the, the corporate yeah. interests. Um, CXW is actually traded on the New York Stock Exchange, and it's uh, the, the Correctional Corporations of America. Um, wow. CXW is profiting hand over fist um, by keeping people in those cramped prison cells, filling the beds. So I, you know, I just want to back that up, Matthew, that, that the statistics uh, and the profit um, are a big part of why perhaps we are so stuck in this place where um, the punitive is leading. And, um, and yet, uh, rehabilitation and, and a, an approach of, of treating each individual as, as a human is, is so integral to this next evolution, perhaps, of, of this particular system, wouldn't mm -hmm. you say? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, it's, it's critical and there's so much that, that we can do now. It's, you know, we have to be a counterbalance to it. So I would just love to take a moment and invite anyone who has a question to press one on your keypad and to continue to stir this really rich view of, of conversation here with Matthew. Press one on your keypad if you have a question. Eric, you're live. Welcome. Hi, how are you, Molly? Hi, Matthew. Eric Kassam. Hello, Eric. Hey, good to talk to you. I'm at Denver Airport. So I'll I'll uh, try to keep out of the noise. Um, but anyway, I wanted to call in for two reasons. Number one, thank you for the light you shine on these important issues. And you too, Molly. I'm very grateful to both of you. Um, another thing is, you know, in the state of California, which is on the verge of bankruptcy, um, you may have already shared this because I joined the call late. But how it's one of the biggest line items in their entire state budget is prison. And uh, the second thing is that. It seems to me like the whole process doesn't make a person better. That uh, it could arguably make them worse. So uh, just those two thoughts. 
Yeah. So, I mean, that's what one of the things I love about restorative justice is that the element of healing that it brings in, that, you know, healing would, you know, it seems like the only sane real solution. You know, it's, it's interesting because what you just said and what you were saying earlier, Molly, there was a, there was a, um, a study, not a study, a poll done a few years ago about incarceration and sort of this lock them up, throw away the key mentality and does prison work. And actually what they found was uh, almost 70% of the population don't think that it's an effective way of dealing with, uh, with, with crime or violence, that the way we do things with prisons really doesn't work. I was surprised with that. I sort of thought that most people, because you, it's a real wedge issue in politics, you know, they throw out the three strikes are out, which we have in California, and all these tough on crime things, and they end up getting votes. But I think there's, there's at least a general sense that it doesn't really work. Um, you know, most of the rest of the world, at least the industrialized world, don't, don't really do it that way. And they have, you know, they're, they're better off on many levels. But uh, I was hopeful and surprised to learn that, that people aren't necessarily as sold on that as I might have thought previously. Mm. The, thank you, Eric, for that question and reflection. Um, and it, it 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 appears to me that um, there's you know we have the the New York Stock Exchange trading CXW Correctional mm. Corporations of America, and we have um, on the other end of things in our world we do have models. Uh, before I got on this call tonight, I was thinking a little bit more um, about the model of uh, the Norway prison system. And the you know, the bottom line of of how they approach um, rehabilitation, as as the Peace Alliance website has as one of its bylines, um, instead of punishment, rehabilitation. And and the essence of what that means seems to have a power to affect the system. Um, and yet, you know, we, we're, we're, we're stuck in this, this um, profit machine that is dehumanizing right. and very much unjust. Um, so, Matthew, if, if you could, and um, we'll go back into questions in a minute, but I would love to hear a bit more about um, just your thoughts on restorative justice and or mm -hmm. um, what the Peace Alliance is specifically either looking into programmatically or actions mm -hmm. or, you know, what, what's, what's, what's hot for, for the Peace yeah. Alliance right now? In, you know, in one, of the, one of the, the we, we've always had sort of, uh, you know, a few handfuls of examples we pointed to when we would go advocate for, you know, the Department of Peace or whatever we were working on. Um, we talked about the programs, and there was a, there's a restorative justice-based, you know, oriented program in Boston, uh, not Boston, Baltimore, Maryland, uh, called Community Conferencing, which is Lauren Abramson is uh, kind of heading that up, and it's a restorative justice model. They call it Community Conferencing, uh, working with youth, bringing them into circles, and that's where I started learning more deeply about the work and how effective it is, you know, and. Right now in prisons, you talked about recidivism, you know, you have 60% of the people who leave prison returning. Um, clearly that's not doing much good for our culture, much less the people in, involved in that. Uh, and, you know, she was sharing that the, the youth that went through their program, you know, you'd have 60% of them would never return to, the, you know, at least the kind of 
trouble they were in that they would have to go through a, a circle process, which is the forum that restorative justice uses is the circle process. And I'm, I'm not, you know, really skilled enough to say too much about it. Uh, you know, I've, I've learned it myself. But it looks at, you know, the victim, the perpetrator, the community as a whole. Uh, you know, really, a lot of times in our criminal justice system, you know, all the victim gets is maybe a feel-good, at least they're going to get punished for what they did. Uh, it's not really soul-nourishing. It's not really healing at any deep level psychologically, um, you know. And this this process really helps the victim, allows the victim to be heard and have a say in what happens to this person. You know, and the, and the same is true for the perpetrator. You know, often, far too often, I mean, most of the time, there's a story behind the person that perpetrated as well, a story that's pretty um, tragic. And so it allows the whole, the whole circle to hear these stories and, and these, what happened and, and really look together at what can be done about it, what, you know, what kind of recompense is there, but also what's going to shift this scenario so that doesn't continue to happen. You know, I, I particularly love the healing aspect of, of what a lot of the restorative justice models use, um, you know, healing for the victim and for the perpetrator. And all the parties affected, the community, the entire community is affected. Whether we think it's somebody else down the street or not, we're all impacted by it. You know, whether it's something basic like our money that's going towards, you know, these challenges, uh, when they can be going towards educating or feeding or, you know, building a road, whatever it is. There's so many other things that the money can be going to, but we, we all pay the price. And we pay it emotionally and psychologically and, and sometimes physically too, you know. Um, the, I live in a in a fairly nice part of Oakland. Uh, Oakland is is I think the number two or three or fourth most violent city in the nation right now. Um, and a lot of the neighbors who live around me um, are shocked and appalled when their homes are broken into or somebody gets mugged. And it is shocking. It is scary. And I don't want it to happen. And it's not it's not surprising. But how could it be? You know, there's a lot of suffering in our community and poverty, and why wouldn't it affect all of us? So I just, I've, I've learned about restorative justice. We, we talk about it a lot. Um, I, I really want some, of, some folks doing the work to work on the faces, of, to tell their stories on faces of peace so we have more solid examples. But it, it, there's so many forms it works in. I know in Colorado, uh, in Denver, the whole school system uses restorative justice. I don't know how deeply entrenched it is, but it's used there. And they, the, they use it as a model for dealing with challenges in school. And it's been, from what I've heard, really impactful and made a big difference. Um, I know a lot of communities use it. The San Francisco Sheriff's Department uses it as a model. Uh, I think the whole city of Minnesota has one of the more sophisticated models in the nation. There's, just, there's a lot of, of ways in which you know, it's, it's really it's more transformative. And it really gets to the base of the problem unlike anything else that we do. Uh, you know, one could argue our prisons, if we're, if we're going to have them the way they are, um, or at least in that form of locking people up, we should be putting a lot more time, energy, and attention towards rehabilitating the people in the prison in a more uh, profound way. And there are a lot of people doing work around that as well. It's not necessarily restorative justice as it's defined, but um, really powerful programs and initiatives that help change people's lives while they're in prison and really utilizing that time uh, to, to be something when they come out, they become productive members of society uh, in ways that they never were before. Um, so there's, productive, you know, that's kind of... Productive, excuse me, Matthew. 
I just I love that point, um, and I just wanted to add to to the facet of productivity. You know, the shift in consciousness um, and approach from punitive to rehabilitative to restorative, being that that people come away from from prison um, with productivity and also with a sense of self. Yeah. Yeah. And belonging and connection. I mean, so many people have been on their own since they were kids, you know, and 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 we've never shown up for a lot of people in our culture uh, as a community or as a nation. And, you know, prevention is always the best option if you can do it, but it's not the current reality. So restoration is the next best thing to really help people transform and mend their lives. I think there's some phrase that includes mend and a lot of restorative justice stuff I see, and I think that's a powerful word in terms of human, mm. the human spirit. Mm-hmm. It, it, it makes me think of, uh, um, again, as you many of you may know, I, I'm close colleagues with James O'Dee, and he and Dr. Judith Thompson recently did uh, an international social healing project, which also had aspects of restorative justice within it, they were in Rwanda last summer, and James and Judith both witnessed a gachacha court, which is actually, from what I can tell, and of course I am learning all the time um, and have a lot to learn more about what, what's happening in the world of restorative justice, but out there in our world, we have this example in Rwanda of all places where, as you were speaking to, Matthew, the community has been not just you know, slightly wounded, but severely wounded, wounded in a way that is unthinkable from the genocide. And yet now, um, and it has its imperfections, this court system does, but again, it's called Mm -hmm. the gachacha system. And it's literally, um, I think the translation means on the grass, grass, uh, grass courts, so courts on the grass. And the community gathers, and they come together, victim and perpetrator, and the stories are told. And somehow the community is very transparent in the process of, of not only hearing and allowing each, uh, each story to be told, but also for there to be um, a dissemination and a distillation of truth. And once mm-hmm. that process is moved through, then there's also programs um, happening where, for example, the Tutsis um, will, a Hutu will come along and, re- and rebuild, literally rebuild the homes that either mm. he or she or, or he, his or her family had burnt and destroyed for the Tutsis. Um, and they work together in that process of, of, of rebuilding and also cultivating one of their primary crops together. Um, so there's definitely something to this, and of course I turned my attention to that model in Rwanda, and then I mentioned the you know the systems in Norway, which it, quite interestingly our paradigm as it seems as a Western culture, or at least in the in the the prominent media um, criticism, is well you, you know you're you're not punishing these people for for what for the heinous things that they've done. Um, you know, because in Norway, there's uh, the rooms, uh, the cells look clean and, and um, feng shui 
and there's a sense of it being a healthy atmosphere. Figure, you know, figure that. Um, and so it's it's just a, how we bring bring that that um, interest, that shift of 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 vision um, of consciousness, uh, of restoration, of of prevention, as you so poignantly point out, into play. Uh, is is in motion right now and and growing strong stronger all the time is it not? It is. I I think it definitely is. You know, life to go faster, but it is. Right. So uh, I I'd love to to take a moment um, now to pause before we we close tonight's time together um, to open it up again to a couple more questions or comments for Matthew. Go ahead and press one on your keypad if you'd like to ask a question or make a comment. I see uh, Joyce. Did you want to to go ahead and you're live now? Joyce, go ahead, and then we'll call hey. on someone else. Yeah, normally I I wouldn't uh, call in twice, but here um, I I just was inspired by so much of what you said, and one of the things that came to mind is. When we were kids and we reflected on uh, war or the visions or visuals of war, we had our own reaction. And I think of what it would be like to ask kids today, you know, what would you like? And, and my mind went to what are some of the really personal positive and negative experiences that you've had I'll just give a few really brief things uh, in my life. I was a university counselor in South Carolina, and one of the, uh, I, I would say, the most tragic things that I've witnessed is a, a double message out there of people needed to go to war, felt like they needed to go to war as young people in their teens uh, in order to make ends meet monetarily. So they would go into ROTC or some other military military uh, event, then they would get there and come back. And because of what had happened and because there wasn't an opportunity to speak through what they experienced, they ended up becoming either violent to themselves or to their families or to others. That's a negative. Mm -hmm. The positives uh, that I've experienced are years ago in the 80s, there was an amazing man called Charlie Gentry who was in uh, social worker who innovated a program that brought the perpetrators and the victims together in families. He was working primarily with uh, sexual abuse and physical abuse in the families. He was one of the first people who brought videotaping into families so that the perpetrators could actually see the effect of uh, the abuse on the whole family. That was extremely positive. It had an amazing effect. And recently, when I was in Colombia, the Mamos, the spiritual leaders of uh, their indigenous tribal societies, talked about what they do with, um, it was kind of along the lines of what Molly was saying in Norway and other places. Uh, they would create a reflection room where the perpetrator would have to go in and reflect for three days. Then the victim would go in and express to that perpetrator how their behavior impacted their whole life, what it did to them. Mm -hmm. 
Then they would be asked to bring in family members and other members of the community who were also impacted by that behavior. They would go into the reflection room and speak to the perpetrator. And the, the statistics apparently are the, the um, return rate of crime is very, very little because the, the person then gets asked to help. You know, here are ways that you can help us to heal from this event. Um, so my question to you is, what are some of the most challenging experiences you've had, and what are the most positive ones? Just, do you mean like, in, like what you were sharing in terms of just seeing things and witnessing things and learning about yes. things? Yes. In your own personal experience with your uh, process of working with peace in the world. Well, um, in some of the things I talked about earlier, I think just, just witnessing, really for me it's about stories, hearing people's stories. That's what I'm exposed to the most, I think, as I meet and learn about people in our advocacy. You know, both th th this one story kind of touches both. A, a man named Azim Kamisa who works in the, lives in the San Diego area. He was, a I believe, an investment banker. And his son was uh, delivering pizza. And, you know, it's one of those initiation, gang initiation rites where his, um, the, the, his son went to deliver pizza and was shot and killed essentially at 15 or 16 years old. Um, and, you know, him sharing the story about the devastation of that for him is just so moving and so bad and so touching. And, and what he did with that, though, rather quickly was uh, move into this idea of restoration and repair around it. You know, the, the, the perpetrator was 13 years old, um, quite terrified as well. He was, you know, essentially forced to do it. Um, and he had he reached out to to the, the young boy who, who shot his son very early on and met with his grandfather, who was one of the main people helping to raise him. And, you know, over time, what he started to realize was there's, there's a victim at both sides of the gun, is how he describes it. And that was just a powerful concept for me when I first started thinking about it. Um, and he now, he and the grandfather now work together. They go around, they have all these amazing programs where they go into schools and tell their story and talk about what it's like and, and, you know, really help urge kids not to get involved with violent gangs and talk about, you know, what, it, what are the needs behind being in gangs. Um, some of them are very valid and people want a sense of community and gangs offer that often. It's where they move into violence where it becomes a big problem. And so they tell these stories and they have curriculum and they help kids kind of stay on a better path. And, and he goes and meets with the son, you know, the, 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 he's now an adult, who, who killed his son, and he, he's trying to get him actually out of prison because he sees it's not, it's not doing anything. It's not productive. He was so young when it, when it happened. And, you know, just, just hearing his story and being exposed to that and then, and then the work that they're doing and the impact it's having uh, by them being bold and honest and telling their story and having forgiveness be such a key part of it and what a person can go through. I mean, you know, that's not something we even think that anybody could ever get to that place where you could really not only forgive but embrace um, out of something so tragic as a parent to lose your, your child to, oh. you know, essentially murder. So that's, that's the example that came to mind. Oh. 
beautiful, and, and it just so happens that Azim, Azim Tamisa <clears throat> will be uh, my guest on December 1st on this series. Good. I'm very that. honored to have him. Um, Matthew, can we go ahead and take one more question? We have quite a few out there tonight that are still wanting to ask. Are you good with the, just one more before we sure, wrap up? Sure, sure. Right. Sounds good. Janet, you're live. Welcome. Oh, my goodness, Janet. Uh, I mean, Molly, this is Janet from Boise. Hi, welcome. Good to hear you and see you here. Oh, yes. Um, I just had to get a comment, and I'm sort of new to this, this conversation, but um, had been on a long spiritual, you know, peace um, centering journey, but I just read in the newspaper in Boise today, and this is just so ludicrous. A man um, committed a crime, you know, rape, murder in 1987, and they've had him incarcerated all these years, and now they're putting him to death. This is such an economic travesty to me, because I know how much money it takes to, you know, hold, um, you know, prisoners for a year, and after 30 plus 35 years, and now they're going to, you know, it's it's such an economic issue, and the rehabilitation, the going in and, you know, helping the prisoners, you know, find their peace and find their, their strength, and I'm a yoga teacher, so that's what I'm thinking. Give them yoga, <laughs> you know, but, um, yeah, what what is the um, work or the awarenesses or the changes that are happening on the economic discussion? In terms of, of how... Cost, cost um, effectiveness, you know, how much does it cost well, there's to a, yeah. pay there's for a great... to house? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's a great, uh, well, in terms of prisons and, and housing costs, you know, it's, it's, it's really expensive. It's especially expensive to, to incarcerate youth. Um, they're, they're, you know, I, I, can't, I don't know the number off the top of my head. It's hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. I think oh, the yeah. average prisoner is fifty or $60,000 a year we pay. I mean, they could be living a, quite a nice life on that money out, outside of prison, you know, yet we won't invest in in programs to help lift people up. But there's a great, everybody should look this up. Uh, it's called the U.S. Peace Index. There's also a Global Peace Index. But, and they're both great. But for domestic issues, the U.S. Peace Index, it's a very long report put out by the Economics Policy. Oh, I don't know the name. I'm sorry. But if you Google U.S. Peace Index, it will come up. And the organization who does it and the great people who do it, Steve Kavalea is one of the main drivers of it. But it, it really makes the case for where the U.S. is at, where each state is at in terms of our, our level of peace. And, you know, these issues are a big part of it, incarceration included. And, you know, it makes a, a phenomenal case for the economics of peace. You mm-hmm. know, if we, if we were at the level Canada was in terms of uh, violence and crime, uh, I, the, the the numbers were astonishing how much we would save in the in the tens of billions. I think even I don't remember. I think like two hundred billion dollars a year. I wish I had the number in front of me, but it was astonishing. But they really go through all the different elements of where we're at, uh, where other indicators are more positive, and how we can shift towards those indicators to a degree, and really makes a fantastic economic case for why this type of work and thinking and worldview are are really more valid um, than the way we're doing things now. Yeah, especially yeah, in the U.S. and the global piece of that you compare different nations. Yeah, 
Yeah, I just wish that information could get to the the peop the, the the change makers. You know, the the people who um, yeah can make. Well, listen. There's nobody out there. There's us, and that's the real point of it. Is you know we're the ones we've been oh. waiting for. We're the ones who have to do this. Uh, you know, so each of us in our own way can do it. You know, I, I would love to encourage you guys to engage at that level in any way you're inspired to, whether it's you know, working with a member of Congress, writing an op-ed or a letter to the editor when you see an article about it, you know, bring these concepts up to your paper. Um, take actions. We have, we have all on our website, we have all kinds of little actions you can take for different like policies and legislation on some of these issues. And mm -hmm. we're trying to increase that over the next year or two. But you can look at our action area and just, just write a quick letter to your member of Congress or to your senator or to the president on these issues. Uh, and we're the only ones who right now are going to do it. There's no big industry out there for this work yet. I hope there will be. But there's not yet. And so we're the ones that have to push it. And we're the ones that have to make it happen and make it a priority. And, and since we know it, we've got to do it. So that would be my big advocacy for everybody is just to think mm -hmm. of some way you can engage on the social political level as well. I mean, there's all levels we have to do it, of course. But, you know, there are you know, somewhat easy things you can do on those levels. And, and, and make Matthew, a difference. it does make a difference. And first of all, thank you, Janet. It's great to see you here. And and yes, Matthew, um, we I love how you say there's there's really no one out there. I mean that there's so many levels to that. And um, once we have a place, once we plug in um, on the outer level and are attending that inner space too, which is such a journey of um, you know with nonviolent communication daily as our practice. So whatever our daily practices are, um, it, it appears to me that we underestimate the power that we do have. And I, I'm so grateful for the courage of, of people um, in all the many ways that they're showing up in, the, in these particular times where great change is apparent. And um, Matthew, I just want to yeah. probably wrap up here. And I'm so mm. grateful to you. And um, I just want to recap really quickly for people who may have joined us late. And of course, this uh, will be archived. This audio will be sent out to everyone to, um, from tonight's call and um, also will be posted at um, my website, which is Molly Rowan Presents. Dot com, and you can find more information about the series there, this Restorative Justice and Social Healing in America and Beyond series that we'll, we'll be taking all the way to the top of 2012 um, mm -hmm. together. So please join, join me and our community, Local Global. I love this format. We can get together and, and really dial in, it, it appears. And so let yeah. me recap, though. Um, just a couple things that if, if you're new to the Peace Alliance and you'd, you'd like to plug in and find out more, go to thepeacealliance.org. That's again, thepeacealliance.org. And one of the places that, that Matthew was speaking about tonight was the Faces of Peace. And he was encouraging us to go there and share our story of peace um, what what we're doing um, in the realms of of our own special offering work service to the world, 
And I love how it's also interactive social media-wise, which is really cool. So once you've posted your offering, you can also um, bring it out into the social media streams if you so choose, which is great mm -hmm. to have that. Um, and then there's also political actions listed at the peacealliance.org, as well as um, the wonderful opportunity to provide a donation to this important work if you are so moved. So Matthew, mm -hmm. um, thank you so much again for yeah. being with us tonight, for, for, for devoting this hour, over an hour with us to just shed some light into your world, um, into the path of, of creating a culture of peace and the mm -hmm. role of the Peace Alliance in, that is so significant in helping us to make sense of our time. Yeah, thank you, thank you Molly, for holding this space and, and being a beacon. And everybody should listen to the Eugene Camisa call because he's amazing. So thank and, you for, and that that. Brings, Thanks all for joining. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, that does bring me, thank you, Matthew, to please, that will be December 1st with Azim Camisa. And next week's call is with Dr. Judith Thompson, who is um, doing very significant work in the emerging field of social healing, and of course I had mentioned her earlier um, in her international work with, with my colleague, both of them are my colleagues, but with James O.D. And so with that, um, have a beautiful evening, and thank you each for being a light of peace in your own way. And thank you, Matthew. Good night, thank all. Thank you.